Hello, and welcome to the Bregman Leadership Podcast. I'm Peter Bregman, and I believe that the best leaders don't try to do it alone. As the CEO of Bregman Partners, my mission for over 30 years and the mission of this podcast is to help successful people like you close your leadership gaps, grow as leaders, and inspire your team, inspire all the people around you to get great results. Joining us today in the podcast is Leah Weiss. She is a researcher, professor, consultant, and author. She teaches courses on compassionate leadership at the Stanford Graduate School of Business and is the principal teacher and founding faculty for Stanford's Compassion Cultivation Program conceived by the Dalai Lama. She has recently written this book, How We Work. Live Your Purpose, Reclaim Your Sanity, and Embrace the Daily Grind. And I was first attracted to it because the title of this, How We Work, was also the same title as my blog that I created for Harvard Business Review, you know, however, seven, eight, nine years ago. And I love the double entendre of, you know, how we work is both how we function and how we work. Like, how does the, what's the the user's manual for a person, which this very much is. So I'm delighted to have Leah on the podcast with us today. Leah, welcome to the Bregman Leadership Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's such a pleasure to connect. And I think it speaks to your generosity of spirit that you were, um, entertained and excited about that um, use of your columns title, I can imagine some other people might have been put off. Um, and I'm surprised that uh, the publishers and everything, we didn't catch that along the way. But it, it's, I love, as soon as that title came up as a, an option, I was like, that's it for that's exactly awesome. the reasons you said. <laughs> no, I'm glad. I always, I've always liked that as a how you work. I'm like, oh my God, I know that title. <laughs> um, all right, so we got to start with... Um, top endorsement of your book. I have long thought that what the Buddha taught can be seen as a highly developed science of mind that if made more accessible to a lay audience could benefit many people. I believe that Dr. Weiss's book in combining such insights with science and good business practice offers an effective mindfulness-based program that will have, that many will find helpful. And that is endorsed by none other than His Holiness the Dalai Lama. So just share with us how you get his endorsement, because I didn't get his endorsement, and that's a pretty awesome endorsement. So, you know, how does it come about that the Dalai Lama endorses your book? Oh, um, well, you got some pretty awesome endorsements, so I don't feel too sorry for you. Um, <laughs> so, actually, Jimpa, um, who I work closely with through the Compassion Center, had helped. I would met um, the Dalai Lama a number of times when I was younger. Um, sort of spending years doing research and living in Dharamsala, um, India, northern India, which is where the capital of Tibetan um, exile life is happening. But um, yeah, through the work we're doing at the Compassion Center that the, the Dalai Lama's interpreter, Chupdin Jimpa, has really been spearheading for almost a decade now, that um, connection was reforged and, and certainly deepened, I think, through the, the project. Um, the Dalai Lama had come to Stanford about a decade ago and wanted to see more by way of research and education happening in the space of compassion and captured so many people's imagination that um, you can find all kinds of um, approaches, interdisciplinary approaches across campus to this topic of compassion. But working closely with Jimpa on our education piece has, has been a great way to um, 
connect closely with the vision and have some opportunities to spend time with His Holiness the Dalai Lama. And has His Holiness the Dalai Lama been involved in in your classes? Has he has he engaged with you and your students? That's a great question. So Jimpa has been more closely involved. Um, the um, opportunities I've had to speak with His Holiness have been more catching him when he's between events. Um, yeah, so flying with him from one place to another, having a conversation in a break between, you know, a, a talk he's doing for 10,000 people and then the next thing. Um, but I don't preclude it. Maybe we'll Skype him in someday. I'll have to and get, invite you in as well, since you're the one putting this idea um, <laughs> at the front of my mind right I now. I think, yeah. You know, it's <laughs> funny because I saw him speak. I, I, I saw a video of him speak or TV. I can't remember what it was, but it was also him speaking with to 10,000 people. And one of the questions from the audience was, you know, can you can you meditate with us? You know, and and you could sort of see him. Like his answer was like, you know, this is a talk. Like, why would you want me to meditate with you? You know, like you're, we're just going to sit here quietly. And, and it, it a little bit goes to some of the theme of your book, which is the distinction between sort of mindfulness and meditation. And then, and he said, well, at the end, after this, I'll sit with you for a minute. And then he, at the end, he got up and he was about to leave and people reminded him, wait, 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 you said you were going to meditate. Uh -huh. And I just found that so funny that he, it was like such an interesting view to like, I mean, med I'm, I meditate twice a day and I feel like for me, meditation has been really useful, but there's also a way in which um, meditation compartmentalizes something that shouldn't be compartmentalized. But maybe we just start with the, the big picture, like big idea of this mm -hmm. book. Big idea of this book is really that work and life don't have to be separate, don't have to be in conflict, that the more human we can be in all of our interactions, including in workplaces, the better off we are, the organizations and communities and families we interact with are. Um, and then I look at positive psychology research and um, make recommendations for how we can move forward to create more human workplaces. Great. And, and you, you sort of propose this heretical idea that taking a couple of hours a day to meditate um, is, is less, um, you know, maybe not essential for people, but um, but something even crazier for most people, which is to single task and focus on what you're doing in the moment as opposed to multitask is the holy grail. And how do we get around the seemingly inescapable temptation to do more than one thing at a time? Because certainly I've written about this and you've written about it. And, you know, we know that multitasking is, is a terrible idea. And yet I'm sure you and I both do it. And so the question is, and it's, a, it's really an underlying question for a lot of this kind of work, which is how do we take what intuitively is smart, what the research shows is compelling, and yet we find very, very difficult to do in daily practice? Yes. Well, I think in part, I love how you're framing it, because to me, a key piece of this is the intellectual humility and just the general humility that you know, these, the temptations in any given moment, it's not a once and done, like, oh, I know monotasking is better. I know there's no such thing as multitasking. There's only task switching and it has costs. But still, when I start getting bored on a conference call or my mind's wandering or, you know, I'm curious what's happened in my inbox. And next thing I know, you know, there I am. And I, I think 
for me, what gets really interesting is the humility and the honesty with how we engage with our time and attention so that we can make the experiments in, you know, what happens. I mean, I and many people I know are moving back to paper for a lot of tasks that a year ago I and many other people I know were using computers for, I think in part because we're getting more realistic about yeah, maybe it, it saves some time from having to transfer over ideas, but how much time is lost and how much quality of focused and creative attention is lost. So I, I think getting um, much, and I think the research can in part help people get clear about and more um, able to discuss distraction without feeling the kind of shame of, of, of feeling this pressure um, I think it lets us ask and answer, like, what are the cultures we want to set up with our teams? How do we want to be interacting? And what does that mean for us? I had a woman come up to me who is um, an executive in a pharma company recently, and I was talking about monotasking. And she's like, I get it. And at the end of the day, I'm in meetings so much in my day that my choice here is to work well into the night and not see my family and not ever be off. Like, she was you know, playing out the conversation of what right. does it mean if you close your laptop and aren't back and forth in the meetings during the sections that aren't relevant to you, putting your attention elsewhere. And then there's a real cost when we're running meetings where people are coming in and out with their attention. I think that's the key, right? So I think it's like, it's not enough to just say, okay, I'm going to single task. I think maybe the next step is to say, if I'm going to single task, what other changes do I need to my environment to make to my environment, to my team? What kind of statements do I have to make? What do I have to take off my schedule that I'm just never going to get to in order to give my full attention to the things that are most important? And I think if we try to get everything done and just spend more hours doing it because we're only doing one thing at a time, that ends up not working. So it's almost like, and I'm curious to get your perspective on this, it's almost like what we have to do is restructure our lives in a way where we're strategic and intentional about focusing on the things that are most important and letting a bunch of other stuff go. I completely agree. I think that's where, for me, the fundamentals, and this is where I start in the book, and this is where I start in the trainings I do, it comes back to purpose. And we need to be clear about, purpose with respect to actual lived priorities. And that's where mindfulness comes in because there's a gap between like my capital P purpose and how I spend my day. Some of that gap I have control over. Some of it I don't. Um, and, and I agree. I think that we need to have hard conversations too, like meetings we shouldn't be at because they're actually not a good use of our time rather than being there and not paying attention can we just have the conversation that it's not a good use of our time? Right. Can we like push forward the like demanding of one another that meetings need to happen with clear intentions, run well, you know, and and that people restructuring how we think about it, all of those that I'm picking on meetings because as you well know, that's the biggest time suck. Um, according to the research for where our time is going in these big increments of time, and then there's we have to take control of that to some degree. And it's not simple. It's it's simpler if you're running your own shop or you're the CEO. If you're a member of a team and you're not, there's a lot of political issues at play, which is part of why people don't feel comfortable saying no to the meeting, because what if they miss something important? Um, but when you start populating people's days with the what if I'm not there mentality is 
disaster. Well, when you're in the middle of the organization, you also need the courage to say, you know, that's not a meeting I need to be at. And and then you have to risk, you know, FOMO, like what are you going to miss out on and what opportunities and people won't see you in that meeting and the optics of it and whether you're offending somebody. So there's a lot of dynamics. And so you need courage, I think, in order to sculpt yes. a day that allows you to be mindful. And some of that courage is also, you know, you need the skill and courage to communicate to people what you're doing and why you're doing and what your purpose is. And you write on page 65, I love what you write here. You write about purpose. You say purpose is something we do, something we create. In other words, purpose isn't something you're going to find or discover. It's actually something we actively invent. And I love that because people are always like searching for their purpose. But in reality, we can really sort of choose or be thoughtful about it. You have some exercises in the book, but be thoughtful about what am I going to, what do I value and what am I going to devote my time and attention to? And it probably doesn't have to be for your life. It could be for a year. It could be for a month. What am I going to devote my time and attention to? And if I'm going to really take that purpose seriously, which is chosen, it doesn't necessarily choose me. Some people feel called, but if you don't feel called, it, you can choose it. And if you're choosing it, then you have to choose what not to do, Right. Absolutely. And, and I think that this choicefulness and pruning or however we want to put it of our time and our calendars and our attention fundamentally, it puts a lot more responsibility on each of us, I think, in a really positive way. And it's not, I'm not trying to say that we can all control our environments or we can control 100% of our time to be exactly on what makes us most lit up. But I think there's a lot more room for control and influence than um, many of us realize in the day-to-day. And it feels really different. I mean, I've been paying a lot of attention to this myself. Like the days where I've put together an intentional sort of structure for my day um, rather than ping-ponging between activities, not only am I more productive, but I feel better when I get back to my kids at night. Like I don't feel that sense of kind of dizziness and just just kind of hangover from sprinting from thing to thing and opportunity um, cost of trying to reorient that it's like this was a day where I was writing or this was a day when I did a few interviews or whatever our things are, the degree to which we can put some coherence, I think has more benefit than just like number of minutes productive. I think it has like this real identity piece to it that is non-trivial. This is a great reminder for me also of what I just need to stop doing. Like that I that 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 it is so worth just the feeling, the emotional experience of putting all of your focus onto one thing makes such a difference in terms of how you feel about your day, not just how productive you are. So I really Love that. I'm curious about your experience with people who meditate and speak about mindfulness and they see themselves as self-aware, but in fact, they're really the opposite and they don't realize how they impact other people and they create toxic workplaces. And it doesn't seem like mindfulness has been helping them so much, but it's just a big blind spot. Like, you know, it's, they don't, you know, the meta moment is inaccessible to them. You know, when you talk, you should probably define for listeners when you talk about the meta moment, but the meta moment is is inaccessible to them, even though they feel like they do it all the time. And I'm curious yeah. about your experience with them. And also, like, I don't know, any ideas to help them? 
I love the question. Um, and it's one that's really dear to my heart, I think, because of my own challenge in moving from being a professional meditator. I mean, I'm saying that in a sort of joking way, but I spent a decade doing, you know, way more long retreats than my parents would have liked, 100 day and six month retreat. And it's a different question, it's a different competency of bringing this into stressful, busy lives. And for me, that appreciation for that challenge is really like, what is behind the work that I do, just like the challenge of this should all translate one to one, but it doesn't. So I think, you know, the meta moment is using Mark Brackett's language out of the Yale Emotional Intelligence Program and this idea that we can, in very brief interludes, have a moment where we are tracking on using what we call in the research language, metacognition or meta-awareness. We're aware of what we're aware of. And it sounds simple, but it's if we're sucked into work and we're trying to get things done and we're agitated and stressed, it's very difficult to actually have that meta-awareness um, running through our day. So these meta-moments are the opportunities to check back in with purpose, check back in with our bodies. Maybe we haven't eaten in hours and we've needed a bio break, but we're just going from one task to another. I mean, people really can live in these top few inches of our bodies. And when we're in work mode, especially sort of high performing, um, over, over educated folks like us. Um, so these meta moments, let us come back to our body, come back to our purpose, come back to what's happening. And I think the breakdown, I mean, for me, when I was writing this book, I felt like, look, there's so many people asking and answering, the question of what is meditation at work or why does meditation matter? Um, and I, I think for me, that was actually the initial book I was going to write. And then I had a couple back to back babies. And by the time I came up <laughs> from that, uh, that book had been written 20 times over. And you know what? I'm grateful that it had, because for me, the question was, okay, for all you meditators out there, awesome. And what are you doing to bring it in to the complexity of your day? Because like I said, my experience is that it's not a one-to-one -one just because you have a strong habit of a mindfulness meditation in the morning does not mean you're a good listener. Right. It does not mean a lot of things like you're pointing out. It does not mean you're empathetic or your experience to have empathic accuracy where you understand the people around you. So I felt like that was the book project. So let me ask, because this is a tricky question. So what if you're one of these people who, because if you're one of the people who has the blind spot, you don't think you have a problem. But if you're one of these people who's around one of the people who have the blind spot, <laughs> right? And, and you teach this. So what I'm curious about what your suggestion would be to help them without infuriating them. And maybe, you know, maybe they're your boss or maybe they're, you know, so like there's, there's some dynamics uh, maybe they're your spouse, which might even be harder than if they're your boss or your partner. Um, but but what what advice would you give people to help this person who sees themselves as a meditator and yet has this blind spot? So my, actually, it's funny you say this, Faust, because my husband and I have this joke. I came back from a, I was spent a day like doing some brainstorming with a design thinking company that wanted to build a product around mindfulness. And so one of the ideas was like, what could you build that would help people in real time understand when there's implicit, when people are experiencing you as being biased? So I brought it right. home and I was like, 
hey, husband, what if we do some anonymous real-time like feedback like technology? He's like, well, I'm pretty sure I'd know who it's coming from, <laughs> you know, it's no, depending on the topic. I mean, maybe it's a four-year-old, but probably it's me. Um, <laughs> I think my place in this work, I tend to work in three, I think in the three dimensions that I'm sure are, you know, at the core of your thinking as well. There's the individual level where we have to do the work ourselves and that has spillover effects onto our teams, onto our organization. I think it's really important um, to do the team level work. So you're creating scaffolding. So it's not putting the onus on, you know, say you're my boss and I think you have some blind spots. If there's no structure in place to give you that feedback, that's a pretty tall order. Right. If so creating have, systems that allow yeah. the feedback to safely be delivered. Yeah. And that you're having, I mean, it's very common to have team coaching. I mean, you know, so you're setting up the environment where that's coming out. It's not just the 360 that happens once a year, but it's an ongoing effort. And then I think the top level of really thinking at the organizational cultural side has a lot to do with it because the comfort level people have at the end of the day with being candid has a lot to do with what's being modeled and what's being actually embodied um, by leadership, not just on paper. So I think those three levels all need to happen. Got it. So I'm curious about something else, which is that you talk about, there's a point in the book where you talk about, you know, Steve Jobs and, um, but like, you know, these sort of people who, you know, are known for creating somewhat, toxic work environments, right? And I have this, you know, underlying question I've always had, which is, I wonder whether, I wonder whether, that's funny, that was my timer telling me to meditate. Um, I, <laughs> Stop, uh, I should, have a meta that, moment. We have a meta moment, <laughs> meta moment. I wonder whether there are, like, some, like if you get, if you get Steve Jobs, to meditate, I kind of think maybe he did, but if you get him to like be mind more mindful and to back off a little bit and to create less of a toxic work environment, you may make him and that organization much less successful. Meaning, I, I wonder whether certain cultures um, and uh, it's kind of different leaders create different cultures and those cultures are the right cultures for that business and that leader. And if you tried to take you know, LinkedIn's culture and put it at Goldman Sachs, you know, or Morgan Stanley or Apple, you would end up destroying that culture. And that that there's really a sense of synergy between the leader and the leader's style and the particular culture and what we, you know, maybe we're trading things off in that way. In other words, like it might feel toxic to some people and they might be a bad fit, but I know that there's some people who must really like being at Apple. And, and I'm just, I'm kind of curious if there's really a uh, model for how we should all be leaders or whether there's ways of looking at people who might get a real bad rap in terms of, you know, how, how they are as leaders. But in fact, they're just the right kind of leader for that environment and that product and, you know, that time. Yeah. I love how you're framing this question. I mean, I never, people will often ask me in interviews, like, tell us about the, you know, What's in a compassionate organization? And, you know, at the end of the day, I don't think there's any, any organization that has 100% nailed 
I think it's the wrong way to look at it. I think the way that I prefer to, to frame it is implicit in your question that I see there being competencies that leaders need to um, understand, be trained in, but how those are expressed is going to be idiosyncratic to their personalities and also to their industry. So I would say, yes, compassion belongs in every organization, but it's going to look really different in a large healthcare company than in a small hedge fund, as it should. So I think the question then becomes, where, what are our definitions? What are the training? What are the metrics? I just finished a case, actually. The next thing on my agenda for today is to get this case locked and loaded into the Stanford-Harvard database with the case writer I'm working with. Um, but it's about mindfulness in organizations, and it's looking at what are the metrics. We look at Aetna and LinkedIn and a few other companies. What are their metrics that they're bringing in for what they're trying to get out of mindfulness? Also, what are some of the unintended consequences when you aren't just asking the leadership and for the sort of marketing side of the mindfulness program, but what else is happening for people feeling pressured to opt in? How well-trained are the people who are running the programs? How well-resourced are they? Um, I think that intention matters a lot. So I would say, you know, we know this from the research because mindfulness covers such a broad array of competencies that you can use mindfulness to do behavior change work or emotion regulation work or attention regulation work, so many different things. So someone who is like, you know, very poor at interpersonal skills, but has great focus, they could be focusing their mindfulness practice to get even better at focus, but it doesn't mean they're getting better at interpersonal skills if that's not part of their intention. So these blind spots can build on themselves, um, to your point. And, um, and I think that we need to ask and answer, what are the competencies? How do we train in them? And how do they show up? How do you know if an organization is effective? And I can tell you there's many times I've had CEOs into my class and afterwards the students debriefing if they even wait till afterwards. And they're just like, I'm going to call BS on this because you're talking about compassion, but you are known to be a terrible employer, right? And I know this, that, and the other aspect because they all have friends who work in these organizations. So like, you know, it's, it's not, it's an open secret. It's an open secret. So you're the person getting the most intention about compassionate organizations and you're known to be horrible to work for. And how do they respond? Um, usually what they'll, the way the students will frame it when they're in the room is you, how would you have gotten where you are using what you're talking about now? Don't you see incompatibility? And then they'll usually wait till they leave the room to say, yeah, that was a bunch of BS because it's completely incompatible. Or maybe that person does it at the top level of leadership, but there's a major breakdown once you get above this little piece of the pyramid right. into the rest of the company. Right. Um, and so I think that's where like my case that we just finished is trying to come in to get much more, like, can we be more precise in what we're talking about with mindfulness and organizations and having like a lunchtime program next to your like dry cleaning offering and the five other perks doesn't really give us meaningful information about whether you're a mindful 
organization? How is that tied into performance metrics and all these other things? And I love what you're saying about, you know, you might be really strong in mindfulness in a certain area, but then there's these other areas where you're not. And it's really about leveraging, you know, your focus from one place to another and about shifting your intention, attention and intention to, to sort of the weaker areas in order to bring them up so that there's not these gaps in what you're trying to produce in the organization. Absolutely. Leah Weiss is with us. Uh, her book is How We Work, Live Your Purpose, Reclaim Your Sanity, and Embrace the Daily Grind. It's such a pleasure to read the book. It's, it's you know, at least as much a pleasure to meet you. Uh, and thank you for being on the Bregman Leadership Podcast. Thanks so much for having me. It's been a pleasure to talk with you. Thanks for listening. Here's what I've learned from working with some of the most successful leaders of the most successful companies. Every leader, every team, and every organization has a leadership gap. If you want to become a leader who inspires your team to get things done, then you've got to start by raising the level of your leadership abilities. You can start by taking our free leadership gap assessment at www.bregmanpartners.com forward slash quiz. Then dive deeper with a copy of my latest book, Leading with Emotional Courage. For more ways to become a truly great leader, check out our online offerings, in-person workshops and events, and my articles at www.bregmanpartners.com. Again, thanks so much for joining me today, and thanks to Claire Marshall for producing this episode. Be sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode.